gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. that. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. What? Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. And this week, we're talking about B2B marketing lessons from Matomo's Google Heimer countdown ad with the help of special guest, head of content and organic growth North America at MoEngage. I have an idea. Take universal analytics and blow it up. Shana Haney, Shana, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Ian? I'm doing wonderful. I'm super excited to chat about this ad. This is a really fun pick. I had never heard of it before. I'm so glad you chose it. So why the heck did you choose it? Yeah. When you asked what a great piece of content was, it was the first thing that really came to mind just because it was so funny and it was so relevant at the time. I think they just did such a good job of really capturing the pain of switching or just switching from uh, universal analytics to GA4. And I'm sure it's pain that we're all still very much feeling. At least I know I am. Oh, yeah. We're all feeling it. I think I told you before we recorded this that my Google Ads person was like, if they change off of GA4 someday... That he's like, I'm just quitting. <laughs> like, I'm just not going to do this anymore. I'm finding a new profession. Which I think just speaks to like why this is so great. And I'm excited to, to dig into this really fun ad. Zooming out. Tell us more about Mo Engage and your role as head of content and organic growth. Yeah. So I'd say for our clients, Mo Engage is really known as a customer engagement platform. You know, it's a software that really helps them understand how to connect with customers and drive revenue and scale their growth. Um, but for me, as a new employee working there, I'm really starting to see that Mo Engage is just full of a global community of intelligent and driven people. And we're all really striving toward creating a great product and creating a great experience for our customers. And for me, owning the North America content side, it's really imperative for us to start making sure that Mo Engage is becoming well-known as a brand. So that's really the key focus, I think, for me as the head of growth on the content side for North America. Love that. And we're going to dig into that content strategy here a little bit later. But first, Meredith, what the heck is Matomo's Google Heimer countdown ad? Gosh, it's a mouthful. So it's an ad. It was created by this B2B boutique ad agency called Umalt. That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire. It's like Umlau, like the German, mm. like two dots over the letter. And it was created for a company called Matomo. So they're basically like a competitor to Google Analytics. And this whole thing is super interesting because the thing was, if you're going to compete against Google, you'd better go big, huge, right? And so Umalt had 
originally created for somebody else. An ad that was a Last of Us parody about Google Analytics 4, which we'll get into in a second. And so Matomo saw it and was like, this is great. Let's do something similar. And so what's really interesting is that because Umalt was working on the ad before Oppenheimer came out, they were banking on this movie doing really well and being a blockbuster hit. So there was a lot on the line for this ad. And obviously Oppenheimer was the movie about J. Robert Oppenheimer and the creation of the atomic bomb. We imagine a future. And our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it. Until they understand it. And they won't understand it. Until they've used it. Came out same time as Barbie. That's why there was Barbenheimer and all of that. So they called the ad Googleheimer Countdown. And it got over 1 million views in the first week. People are saying it's hard to migrate to and even harder to understand. They won't migrate to it until they understand it. And they won't understand it even if they've used it. What? Customers in the comments were praising it and selling Matomo to the other viewers in the comments. And then Matomo had a plan for this like strong distribution strategy after the release of the ad. So they were responding to comments. They were resharing and reposting viewer posts. And they also had paid a media agency to amplify the ad. Their sort of like mindset at Umalt was that they wanted to have this be like appealing to viewers and entertaining first and then doing marketing second. So Matomo branding is kind of smaller. It's towards the end. And the first thing they wanted to do is to entertain the audience. And they said, this is what happens when you make a hit video people actually want to watch. The thing that really struck me with though is that timing was everything for this ad. So they posted it in June of last year in 2023. And it was after Google had announced that they were getting rid of what they called universal analytics, which is what everyone uses. It's also called Google Analytics 3 or GA3 for short. And they basically said they were going to stop processing data on July 1st of last year. So that means they're getting rid of everything. And so it was forcing people to migrate their data to either Google Analytics 4, so this new version. Now, GA4 might feel like it was made by nerds for nerds and that you need some kind of computer science brain to even understand what's going on. Or another analytics provider, otherwise known as Matomo. And so they were like, we're going to put this out at this exact time when everyone's panicking, oh my God, they're going to get rid of everything. And it was a major like calculated play and super, super smart. So this, to me, like this, this campaign did three things really well, right? Entertainment first, marketing second. They made a parody, especially of like trending content like Oppenheimer, and they timed the content super, super wisely. But yeah, so that was my thoughts on the Googleheimer countdown. They gave it a really long name, hard to say, but I think it's super cool. One thing I was wondering, Shana, and just curious if you had seen Oppenheimer and if you think that you needed to see Oppenheimer to get the Googleheimer ad and why that might be important. I did not see Oppenheimer and I don't think that you needed to see the movie in order to get it. <laughs> I think it was pretty clearly obvious what was going on there and what the sentiment that they were going for was. So I think that was done pretty well. 
Yeah, totally. Because I was like, I haven't seen Oppenheimer, but I like, I do get it. And I think it's interesting that it's super cinematic. So even though I hadn't seen the movie, this ad is still really entertaining to watch. And they explain things well in the limited amount of time that they have. Yeah, I totally agree. I didn't see, I didn't see Oppenheimer yet either, but it's so, you know, crystal clear and not to be, I mean, everyone says Oppenheimer is really cool and a great movie, but like, we know what happens, right? <laughs> we know it's not, I don't know, like Barbie, for example, where like, well, you, do, you don't, uh, you have no idea what the story is going in, right? It's like, we know That's exactly true. what happens in Oppenheimer. So I think just the idea of we've seen, I mean, how many ads have we seen for Oppenheimer over the past couple of years with how anticipated this release was? We've all seen like a million shots of Cillian Murphy and, you know, all that stuff. So I think it was just really easy to piggyback off all the marketing that was already being done and then just use that. And then obviously, you could make an argument mildly insensitive here to compare Google Analytics 4 to the atomic bomb. But, <laughs> um, you know, where I think that where, where there's interest, there's opportunity. So I think that, not to be overly dramatic, but I do think that like going to GA4 was like, is life changing for anyone who uses the tool. If your entire livelihood, if the way that you feed your family is using GA4 and your entire world is flipped upside down and you have to go use the tool, another tool anyways, because you got to learn GA4 now, the idea that this is like a pretty catastrophic event for you is like pretty real. And like people obviously justifiably freaked out about, about Google changing this and just so many changes that happened within this like massive change in, in, in tech. So, I mean, I think that like, Obviously, it's a parody and it's over the top. And I think that's why it's so funny and successful. Mm -hmm. Desert must be making my G4 dashboard act funny. I can't see the specific number of users I've had today. Just rounding them off. It's not acting funny. It's GA4. Yeah, for sure. I think that they nailed it like really well with the idea that <laughs> everybody's world was going to explode. And I think that, yeah, we're still like all of us who are still using GA4 now and cannot go back to universal analytics. We're all still trying to navigate that. So there's data being lost. There's there's a clear reason why Matomo would be able to capitalize on this. And so I think it, it definitely made a lot of sense. Yeah, I also think that the fascinating decision for me is to go make something this high production. Because that's part of the thing that I found. This is like a legit high production thing. Like an alternative version of our little marketing world, our remarkable world that we're building, is that they could have just done like a text, or I mean a display ad. They could have taken Oppenheimer standing there, Cillian Murphy standing there, and made a meme, and then just like ran that ad as like, you know, on LinkedIn or wherever else. And probably would have done like, you know, pretty well as like the, you know, the cheapest possible way to do that. But as we know with ads, there's no way to go viral, right? So it's like, if if that was posted and maybe it goes viral or something like that, it's going to have in no way the impact that shooting something that's a real video, that is a real little mini story could do. And I think that's the reason why people like actually loved it rather than just sort of you scroll on your feed and you go, eh, that's funny. And then you keep going. Whereas like, after watching this, like I Googled Matomo. I'm like, what is this company? What do they do? Right. Like I had to know. I'm like, this, like, you have to know, right? Whereas if you just see like an ad that you scroll by, you're like, eh, maybe I'll just keep going. 
Yeah, it probably was one of those things like the marketing department is, okay, what is our big win for the year? And then they're like, oh, wait, there's this whole Google Analytics fiasco. How can we best capitalize on that? Let's just take a big risk and see if we can make it a thing rather than just going small with it. Now I am become GA4, the destroyer of analytics. Everything comes down to this. My greatest creation. Wait. All you've done out here is make a countdown timer? Yeah. So I think that there's definitely some like strong strategy behind that. It could have failed and it could have cost a lot of money. And we don't know actually how well it, it actually performed or how it's contributing to revenue. We don't have that insight, but... I think that was definitely a conversation that happened and they decided to just go with it. Yeah, and I think it just shows what they like stand for as a brand a little bit. They don't seem like they're the most, from just checking out the website, they don't seem like they're like the most outgoing brand in the world. So it seems like it is a bit of a departure from perhaps some of their existing marketing. What are you building out here? The future. Looks like you just made everything more confusing and got rid of reports everyone loved. I call it GA4. But it's just like really well made, really well shot. It looks real. The shots that they have in there are like incredibly well done. I have no idea how much it costs. I would love to know. Stuff like that. If you were to shop something like that, probably is 200, 300 grand. If you were to go to an agency and get something like that made. I don't know, like cost. Then if you were to shoot it, again, I don't know, but plus post-production and all the script writing and everything, but it's probably not a cheap thing, but it was executed extremely well. I was trying to look for for cost to produce this kind of ad, and I couldn't find it. It's very secretive, but I did look for it. And yeah, looked for results too and couldn't really find anything on it. Yeah, with my trained agency eyes, I would say, generally speaking, if you're going to go to an agency and say, create a two to three minute, like, video with an in-person shoot and all that sort of stuff. It's probably like 300 grand. Yeah. I shot a video once and it was a very short video and it didn't have any actual in-person stuff and it was like over 10K. So I think at that scale, you're probably talking about a couple hundred grand. I wonder what their price point is because, you know, if it does contribute to a couple of closed deals and they have a decent price point for the product, then it could make a lot of sense. Well, so what's interesting is, so they have a freemium version. And so what what I could understand from it was that, and they have like, it looks like a $20 a month type product. So it's, but I don't know if they have like an enterprise element to it, to the product. But yeah, at the end of the day, like getting a million people to pay attention to your thing and to get that brand awareness. And it's something you can reuse forever and ever, right? It's like, you just take that ad and make it into a million other things and use it for all your marketing for a while and probably would do really well. And again, it's it's different, right? It's it's different than everything else that's out there, right? It could have been made for 50 grand. It easily could have been made for 50 grand. I just mean, if you were to go to like a high-end, I don't know what the good people at Umalter are charging, but there's definitely, you could you could easily spend 200, 300 grand on a one of the viral videos. Like, you know, you see the, um, some of those like viral funny videos that a lot of companies have done, like Harry's and all those. Those are like $300,000 commercials. Yeah. Anywho, you could buy a business thriller for that. Get your own <laughs> podcast murder mystery. But they did great. It's really cool. What we talked about, why it's, why it's remarkable. Anything else there? Yeah, I think we pretty much covered all of the points that I 
was thinking about just the fact that it was not just entertaining. It was also hilarious. <laughs> You're talking about blowing up a product that people have been using for 20 years. Don't worry. We'll send them reminders and then remind them again with increasingly confusing reminders. And I think that takes a special skill in order to bring actually funny marketing to the table. A lot of brands try and fail. So I think that was one thing that they definitely did really well. Yeah, to, to me as a marketer, you're just immediately jealous. Like I said, so when you showed this to us, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. I wish I had done this. Like I, I wish I had made a big deal of GA4. Like what a missed opportunity. And we don't even sell to that. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we don't even sell to those people, but I just definitely jealous. And then the other thing for me is the audience has to do so little lifting because it's a parody. You're using infrastructure that's already there. You're using a story that's already there. You're using all this stuff. And, and especially if you haven't even seen it, like none of us have even seen Oppenheimer. So it doesn't even matter. Like, so all of it is brand new to us anyways, but you sort of know the story and you know, like, oh, you're kind of in on the joke. You're like, I know where this is going. And then you see all the little things throughout the video that make you smile. That to me is like you, when you hijack somebody else's story like that and, and use that as a foundation for your story. And that's why parody works so well. It, it is such a winning strategy. All right, let's talk marketing lessons. Yeah. I mean, I think you talked to this a little bit already, but I think that one of the first things that comes to mind is that it's really important to know your audience, right? So this wouldn't have been successful if they didn't know that this was going to resonate. And they they were really able to understand the triggers that the audience was going to respond to. When we push that button, we destroy universal analytics. But we're keeping everyone's data, right? 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 And so I think that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that it's really critical that you're able to capitalize on these industry trends. Trend jacking has been proven to work really well. And if you can do it in such a way that is geared towards the favorability of your organization, just like Matomo was able to capitalize on the fact that all of a sudden, all of these people are freaking out about their analytics and that's what they offer. It's just a genius way to be able to kind of move your marketing in a direction that's going to be successful and it's already built in. And then I think the third thing to think about too is just, it's really about how you follow up on a campaign like this. The video, of course, we've already discussed is really awesome. It came out really great. It's totally a viral piece of content that'll get shared over and over again, but you do kind of have to think about how you're going to follow up on that, make sure that you have the monetization strategy baked in there. Otherwise, all those impressions aren't gonna amount to anything for your brand. But I like the idea that they had people on deck to respond to comments and are really engaging with the people who are engaging back. I think that's a really great way to kind of insert yourself into those conversations. So it's not just, here's a piece of content. It's great. Okay, next. So I think that those are like the three lessons that kind of came to mind for me. I love it. I um, The know your audience piece is, is so important. The way that I think about it is like if you were to just interview your customers or your prospects and be like, what is the thing about work that pisses you off the most? Take that and make some ads out of it, right? And then for trend jacking, I was thinking about everybody is thinking about cookie-less future, right? Like we're going to get so many plates of cookies sent to us, I hope, please, if you're listening, <laughs> about, about cookie-less future. But that's going to be one like you could do a parody of that. And then I think you're exactly right that it's like how you follow up, right? Don't just make this, put this 
get ready to respond, get ready to comment, get ready, really seed it. Like you said, Meredith, they put marketing into this to make sure that it did get a non-organic push, which is, I think, super critical. And then they had, seems like they had all hands on deck. Tell your advisors, tell your friends, get everybody to like it, get everybody to comment, get it going. And I totally agree with all that. Yeah, I guess the one thing is, how the heck did I not see it? <laughs> I'm pretty, pretty online, pretty LinkedIn online too. I don't even remember how I found out about it. I must have seen somebody had shared it somewhere, maybe on LinkedIn. Well, and I kind of follow a lot of the uh, different awards that, that get out there. Just we have a bunch of stuff from the like the for our podcast and different things that have gotten nominated for those type of things, the Webbies and Adweek stuff and all that different stuff. So I, I'd, I'd say I pay attention to that stuff a little bit and I never saw it on any of that, but it's hard to know, right? Yeah, it's just tough. I'm I'm honestly confounded as how I've never, how I didn't come across it organically, to be fully honest. And you don't remember how you found it either. I'm thinking that it was probably somebody who posted a comment about it on LinkedIn and they said, this is an amazing piece of marketing. And I was like, okay, I got to go check this out. Hmm. Okay, any uh, any other final thoughts on, on Matomo? I mean, I guess just like I'd never heard of Matomo <laughs> until I saw this ad. And so now I know of Matomo. And I think now millions of marketers now know of Matomo. I think that it's just a one splash in the pan thing, but we'll see how it pans out for them. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, me too. And we're, we were like in the market looking for some like data tools and some doing stuff like that. And like when you told me about it, I was like, oh, I'll send this over to our K runs our ads and see what he thinks about it. So it's, it literally got, they don't know that. Well, I guess I've been to the website a handful of times, so they might know that. But yeah, interesting. The other thing I find pretty interesting is so it went pretty pretty viral on LinkedIn. Lots of comments there. So we got 465 reposts, 218 comments, about 1,500 likes. But they shared it from their company page. I wonder if it would have done way, way better if they had shared it from personal page. Ian, do you notice a difference when you post on your LinkedIn versus when oh, it's completely, you post yeah, from yeah. Casting? So basically, so LinkedIn reserves traffic for people. So they cap brands. So only 80, this is, so they say, or so the powers that be say, that about 80% of the traffic is reserved for people posting stuff. So they want you to see people. They don't want you to see a ton of brands all the time because they want brands to advertise, right? And they don't want people to just see the, the network is about people. It does get capped, right? For sure. Yeah, just an interesting data point. Yeah. I think you lose some of that brand equity that you're trying to get if you don't post it from the company page, though. Yeah, it's no, for sure. I just wonder if like the CEO posts it, you know? Yeah. Anywho, yeah, it's really cool. It's a great campaign. It's really well executed. I wish I knew how much it costs. My guess, I'm saying, I think it's got to be at least 100 grand. It's a pretty cool shoot. I, I just don't know what they did. It seems like there's like four or five different spots that they shot, like... I'll get, we'll have a, our correspondent, Dane, weigh in at some point. Switching gears to Mo Engage and your content strategy, Shannon. How do you think about content? Yeah. 
So that's kind of a deep question, I guess. You know, when I start thinking about what, like how I think about content, it goes into this bigger sphere. And I think that content, much like art, can really be perceived as boundless in its possibilities. And I think I, given this from the fact that I studied art in college, this is just like a concept that I think about is that everything is art. And I think that you can approach content creation with the belief that virtually anything can really be translated into a meaningful content. And just to refer this back, like there's a story that we were taught about in college about Marcel Duchamp. He famously redefined art by basically taking a urinal and putting it in a studio and saying, this is a sculpture. And I just like to think about that because I think when it's considered in the realm of business, this idea is really freeing and you can sense that the limits of what constitutes content are only confined by the creativity and the intentions that you bring. So yeah, just a little bit abstract, but I think ultimately the key is to ensure that there's purpose behind the content, uh, even if that purpose is just to challenge the very notion of that meaning itself. So I really think that this philosophy empowers people to create more dynamic and explorative content with the significance placed on impact rather than just thinking about what it should be. But to caveat that, like when I take it down, got to ground this a little bit, it's definitely crucial to think about what the practicalities of your content marketing are. So you're really still responsible for driving tangible results. And I think that's the demand gen side of my experience really talking, but everything really does need to be balanced. It's art and science, understanding your audience's needs and the, the engagement metrics and all the business goals that go behind that. I think when you can distill those two things down, that's the grounding or the basis for how I like to think about content strategy. And I, I just think that, yeah, it's really about figuring out how you're going to take that creativity and make sure that you're pairing it with the results that you need to drive. So I hope, hope that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I always refer to our work as art projects. And I say that they go from art project to, uh, to business project as soon as you link in all the business pieces and all the architecture and the sales org and all that other stuff. But until then, it's just a little art project. I have a question for both of you. Do you know how much the Sistine Chapel cost? How much they paid Michelangelo? How much the Pope apparently was insistent Michelangelo do it? And how much do you think he was paid? In do US say, dollars? Yeah, so this is 2021 dollars, US dollars. Hmm. Nothing. <laughs> Incorrect. He was paid quite a bit. $200. <laughs> he was paid 3,000 ducats. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, but about $600,000 in 2021 money. Are they paid in mini goats? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently they're... Um, whatever their form of money was the ducat, I guess. Um, but I just think that's... I always try to remind people about like how much art is subsidized by business. And like in that particular scenario, obviously you have all sorts of different factors at play there. But the idea that like Michelangelo has paid a pretty decent amount of money for making the Sistine Chapel, that so many artists were not just doing stuff to do it for funsies or for their love of the game. They were doing it as a job. 
And like we all have jobs and we all do our projects and we get paid for them. And if you can connect them to business value, then those our projects turn into, you know, revenue drivers. And I totally agree that first and foremost, we should be thinking about our work as art. And I think that part of the reason why this stuff feels so bad is because we treat it like school. Just because it's educational does not mean it should not be entertaining. So how do you how do you think about ROI then? ROI. It's it's one of those one of those things that it's really important, but it also really gets under my skin when people focus on it too much. I think that in terms of content, it really extends beyond what you would consider like a traditional calculation method. And I think it's really essential to recognize that content marketing is not a standalone function. It's part of a really vital part of the entire business ecosystem. And I think one way to kind of gauge how your content marketing is going is just to see, like, is your brand's message impactful? And if it is, then it's naturally going to permeate throughout the business and it should reflect across your company's growth. But I do think that attempting to attribute ROI granularly, like to a single piece of content, a blog post, a video, I think it's futile for businesses, especially ones who are smaller stages where it's just not only is it's just not feasible even to track at that level, but it's really not going to be worthwhile. And unfortunately, this is something that the CEO and maybe your finance team doesn't want to hear, but not everything is always quantifiable. So I think it's really important when thinking about ROI to remember that content is not only collaborative, but it's also, it's on the onus of not just the content creator to figure out how it's going to demonstrate revenue. And I think that it's important to not focus just on direct revenue, but also to think about how like your attribution model might work from across the entire funnel, not just first or last touch, which is something that lots of organizations struggle with. And I've definitely experienced that a ton in my career. But it's really important to just understand those things because content marketing is a full funnel activity and it's going to go beyond just that person who requested a meeting or a demo. You're going to be producing content that is speaking to customers and influencing beyond people who are even in your funnel at the time. So just to take a holistic idea and look at how content performs, it's definitely a really big question. Of course, there are like leading and lagging indicators that you can look at. But I'm definitely a firm believer that excess focus on ROI can stifle your creativity and hinder the authenticity of your brand. So that's kind of just how I think about ROI. There's lots of best practices out there for measuring it. I'm not going to get too far into that, though. Yeah, I mean, we just had Devin Reed on the show, and we were talking about no like trust, right? Is like, at the end of the day, first, people need to know who you are. Like, we know who Matomo is now. Then they need to like you. And I'm like, I kind of like them because I just saw that ad. I'd like to go on a second date and I'll, and I'll check out some stuff there. But now I know I was already potentially problem aware because we need a solution for our data that's beyond Google Analytics. We already knew we needed that. So I was already I was already problem aware, right? Now I'm solution aware because I know who Matomo is and I could figure that out. And like, do I trust them? Well, now I need to go into that. Now I need to go who, see where their customers are, see the use cases, look at the magic quadrant and do all those little things to figure out if this is a trustworthy brand to do business with. And the first two ways into that is about content, making stuff that people enjoy and is helpful and catches their attention and makes them think like, like, you would want to think. And ads don't really do that. Could do a little bit of it. Not that it's just ads versus content, that they're they're not adversarially 
connected. And, and but to use that as an example, something that helps me figure out some solu- some problem that I've been trying to figure out for a long time. And I read an article or listen to a podcast episode, and then I figured it out, and I then I go on to the next thing. I have a pod- this is a random side, but I have a podcast that I listen to, which I don't listen to regularly, and I they had a guest on that I really liked. And it helped me figure out a really hard problem that I'd been working on months to solve. And like, I didn't email the guy who made it. I didn't email the the person, the guest who came on. I didn't comment on any threads. I didn't do whatever. But that person helped me on on my way. And I like remember them and I think of them and I trust them now. And like, that's the stuff that is so important. And like, what other vehicle could that person have given me? What other gift could they have given me that would have got me to that realization? Like, it's not swag. It's not an ad. It's not inviting me to a conference. It's just giving me the knowledge that I didn't have before. Yeah. It's really important when you're doing content strategy to understand what those things are that you're going to try to solve for people. So that kind of comes back to like really knowing your audience and how to resonate with them. Because if you produce content that doesn't solve their problems, then obviously it's not going to prove the ROI that you need. Yeah. And I think that's like part of the problem with ROI as a discussion is if you're starting off on like, hey, people need to buy our stuff. And that's like the only thing that we're solving for. It's like, no, it's not. It's like, we're here to fill the gaps of their knowledge so that they know, like, and trust us so that when it's time to buy our software, that they're like, oh, this is my favorite company that of all these options. Totally. Sometimes it's not even about what the software does or the features that it has. It's it's about what you perceive when you see the brand and when you get in there, if it solves your problem, if lots of people know, like, and trust it, um, it makes your job a lot easier to sell it. So tell me about some of your favorite content that you've created over the years. Yeah. So I have a couple. Um, I have this one piece that's near and dear to my heart. It comes from when I used to run an agency and it's inspired by Marcus Sheridan. I don't know if you know him, but he's a He's a They Ask You Answer author. And in his book, he talks about really creating these five pillars of content that answer people's questions. And one of the things that he preaches is to talk about your competitors. And so I created this article for one of the companies that I worked at, and it was called The Top Agencies in San Francisco. And basically what it was, we were also a marketing agency selling services and things like that. And it listed out all of the people who that if they weren't going to go with us, that we would say, okay, these are like stand-up competition. If you're not going to choose us, then like maybe go check these guys out. It's very counterintuitive. But one of the things that's so great about this is that you're really giving a transparent, non-biased approach. And people really respect that when they come to your site. And we also rank for top agency San Francisco. So you're getting people who are searching high-intent traffic they land on the post, they maybe read the post, and then they fill out your form because they trust you. And so I think that was one of my favorite pieces that I worked on. And I will say that I got lots of pushback on this particular piece, and I don't think that it's published anymore now that I don't work there. But I can tell you that it generated a lot of really great high-intent leads for us. So I think that it's important to not shy away from things like that. I love that. That's a great story. What else? Yeah, I've got a few more. The next one is this book. I created a, a, I would say it's like an actual printed book. It's called the Fraud Fighters Manual. It's something that I worked on while I was at Unit 21. And it was the first of its kind kind of piece of content for this risk and compliance audience. 
they had never really had somebody who came and said, okay, we're going to get stories from all of these different people in fraud prevention and pull it together into an actual book. And so I have like an actual coffee table book now that's about, I don't know, 150 pages of laid out like content. And it was a really interesting project to work on because I got to meet and talk to a lot of different people and get their stories into writing and share it around. So I'm really proud of that piece. It took about six months in total. So it's probably the biggest project wow. I've ever worked on. Yeah. Isn't it amazing just like those type of initiatives where it's like you spend so much time on it? We did that with our book with the Serialized Content Framework where it was way more than that. It was probably like a year and a half at honestly, like between draft one to the final. And then it releases and you're like, I think I hate this. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're like, okay, no, I like it. I like it. But it's, and then years later, you're like, okay, that was pretty, pretty darn rad. Yeah. And like you live and breathe the stuff when you're in it and you're just, please let this be done. <laughs> um, but then you get to have a big launch party and and it's a thing that lives on for a long time. And it's like a brand artifact that I know is going to live on. Even though I don't work there anymore, they still have this piece of content and they're still going to use it. And I think that they might even do like another, like a round of it at some point. It's cool to just be part of. Awesome. I guess we, I have one more. I worked on this series when I was at Hearst Bay Area called Marketing Matters. And it was a video series. And I'd say that was one of my favorite campaigns or things that I worked on just because it allowed me to really experiment with a different channel. I had never done any video work before. And so I took this on and I set up a video camera in my living room and I learned how to like write a script and I got like a prompter and, um, you know, put it all together and I learned how to edit them and like put them together. So I thought that was a really fun um, project to work on. And something that I'm really proud of, even though the content is old and now and kind of embarrassing. <laughs> oh my gosh, I would die. We were talking about the growth marketing conference before before we got on air. And I was saying that I think my first batch of real interviews ever were at the growth marketing conference where we had a whole remote set up. And oh my gosh, those videos got to be so embarrassing. They're out there somewhere too. That's the worst part. <laughs> oh yeah. Floating around the internet. <laughs> Okay. And then I know you have some cool stuff going on in MoEngage. What are you excited about? Yeah. So I've been with the company for about two and a half months now, and we're about to launch like our first big content piece. It's called the State of Cross-Channel Marketing for 2024. It's an industry report where we surveyed over a thousand people, responded to the survey, and we distilled down their insights. So this is for B2C marketers. And it's focused on cross-channel marketing and customer engagement and things like that. And it's been what I've been living and breathing for the last few months. So I just, I've been the main project manager for this. And we have so many different components for this launch that I've just been overseeing. And so we're launching it on the 7th of February. And so I'm very excited to get that out there as our first big piece of content from the North America side since I've joined. And I think like something that's important about this is that it's the first time that we've really done like a full-on survey of just like the industry, not just like customers, but it's like going out there and talking about people's problems and getting their challenges and their priorities and putting that into a report. And we're using people like the Marketunist who has helped contribute a little bit to this. Um, mm -hmm. So it's actually quite funny. So I think that it, it's going to be a really interesting and fun piece of content. So I'm really excited for the launch of that. I know. I saw the the Marketunis involved and uh, so good. It's going to be going to be really excited. And final thing before we get out of here, 
What is one piece of advice that you would give to other heads of content that were out there? Yeah. So I think we've kind of alluded to this a little bit in this program, but I want to just reiterate that content marketing is really just both art and science. And I think it's important not to skew in either direction too far. Otherwise, the entire strategy might suffer. I think that too much emphasis on things like creative writing and awareness building activities really will leave you with an empty pipeline and people won't be so happy with you if that happens. But if you focus too much on testing and optimization and lead generation, it's going to limit the overall effectiveness of you resonating with your audience. It's just one of those things that you really have to balance when you're in content. And some of the experiences that I've seen, especially when I've taken over from for roles when people have been in them before me, I've noticed that there, there's either like too heavy an emphasis on top of funnel content brand awareness with not really a lot of insight into how we're going to make that content actually convert and how it's going to resonate. And so I think that's just really important to think about when you're a content marketer. It's not just about creating a great story. That's really important and you have to do that, but you have to also understand how it's going to play out and how it's going to relate back to your business goals. So that's one thing. And then I think the second thing is that you got to take other people's opinions with a grain of salt. I've definitely experienced that everyone thinks that they know how to do content marketing. And it's especially hard now that ChatGPT can write something for you. But the reality is that all great marketing is executed based on a solid foundational strategy. And that is what you own as the head of content. So you have to do the math required to appease your leadership overlords. But you need to rely on your experience, your intuition, and your creativity in order to bring the brand to life. I love it. Awesome advice, Shana. So wonderful having you on the show. For our listeners, you can go check out Mo Engage. Go to moengage.com. And definitely, as she mentioned, got some really cool stuff with that new report. So look out for that. Check it out in the show notes. Shana, any, any final thoughts here? Anything to plug? I think, yeah, just the report and check it out. I think if you're interested in contributing to any content that we do in the future, reach out to me. I am always looking for people in B2C who want to talk customer engagement and cross-channel marketing. So yeah, that's my plug. My line is open. Follow me on LinkedIn. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. Time to get Matomo. That's a good idea. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood-style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise. <laughs>